Welcome to the Mojas Druitt Family Team podcast series. I'm Victoria Cobham. And I'm Elizabeth Dowler. And in this podcast series, we're going to be explaining a little bit more about some key family law topics to give people more of an understanding about their money and their life. Today, we're going to be discussing a little bit about prenuptial agreements and how those work and how they are used in day-to-day practice. So Victoria, can you tell us a little bit about what is a prenuptial agreement? Yep, so uh, prenuptial agreements are essentially agreements entered into prior to a marriage uh, between a couple. Um, And it's sort of a contract where a couple particularly want to regulate their financial arrangements and what would happen if there were a later divorce or separation. Um, seen very much as an unromantic concept um, and quite often that the conversation that I'll get from clients thinking about it is oh gosh how on earth do I broach this subject and I have to be completely honest and say you have to go and talk it through with your with with your intended Um, there is absolutely no point in them getting a solicitor's letter suggesting this Um, you really just need to be open and, and transparent and honest at the end of the day, you know, prenuptial agreements can be seen as unromantic, but actually are there to protect both parties in reality and provide some certainty um, so that there isn't, you know, if there is a divorce, uh, you know, there isn't a huge amount of, of legal cost in, incurred in deciding how to divide those assets. Everyone knows where they stand. It's a little bit like getting a house insurance policy, isn't it? You don't hope that there's never going to be a flood or a fire, but if there is... Thank goodness you've got one absolutely. to protect your background. Yeah, I think that's absolutely. just a really interesting way to think about it. Yeah, definitely. And one thing people ask me a lot about when I I ask about discuss prenuptial agreements with them is you know they're kind of seen as quite an American thing, and perhaps the UK don't really have them, and we don't really think they're worth anything. So, what's your view? Are they worth the paper they're written on? So, absolutely is is a short answer. Um, maybe sort of twenty thirty years ago. Um, less weight was given to them, um, but they're certainly being given a lot more, um, they're sort of being relied upon a lot more. So if I sort of explain the law in terms of family proceedings, so if you get divorced and there is no prenuptial agreement in place, the starting point is 50-50 of of all assets, regardless of whose name they're in. There are reasons to depart from that, uh, but that's the starting point. And so what this prenuptial agreement or a prenuptial agreement you know, aims to do is to move away from that starting point. Now, in terms of whether they're worth the paper they're written on, they're not yet in the UK or in England or Wales, strictly speaking, legally binding. And what that means is that you cannot oust the jurisdiction of a judge or the court to decide, you know, what the arrangement should be, the financial arrangements on your divorce. So if you divorce, the courts can make, they can still decide to make a different award to that contained in the prenuptial agreement. But the prenuptial agreement will be one of the factors the court look look at, it deciding what that, that settlement should look like or what they should order. Um, and in my view, and certainly as case law is developing in terms of what's before the court, it's been you know given significant weight if certain safeguards are in place. In fact, the Law Commission... Gosh, it was quite a little while ago. I think it was around 2014, but but actually said, do you know what? We want to bring out something called qualifying nuptial agreements. 
So these would be legally binding so that the law commission is actually saying, you know what, people should be able to manage their financial affairs. We think that they should be binding provided there are safeguards in place. They're not, they're not, as I say, but I think that just shows the strength of feeling in the fact that actually more and more uh, reliance is being put on prenuptial agreements and people being allowed to manage their finances. And certainly if a, if a client comes into me, um, I always say do not sign this prenuptial agreement unless you intend to be bound by its terms, uh, because really the courts are, are, are upholding them. And what factors can be put in place to make them more binding? Absolutely. So so some safeguards in place is, is what the court are wanting to see, basically. So one is that the prenup should be entered into at least 28 days before the marriage. So this is to make sure that no one is sort of, you know, day before the wedding thrust, a prenuptial agreement thrust before them to sign. Um, and there can be any suggestion that there was undue pressure or, or, or duress put on one of the parties. I have done prenuptial agreements within that 28 days I've done some sort of literally you know a week before the wedding Um, what we tend to advise in those instances just to make sure that they are as persuasive and have as much weight as possible is to then after the wedding enter into a mirror postnuptial agreement so postnuptial agreement and prenuptial agreement are the same things the only difference is the timing of that so prenuptial agreement is a contract entered into before the marriage postnuptial agreement is a contract entered into after the marriage i think that's one of those things isn't it when you're planning a wedding you're thinking about food and flowers and all sorts of lovely yeah. things and sometimes you get really close and think oh i haven't done this quite quite important thing i think i think for me what i advise my clients is generally speaking the longer in advance you can do it the better but if you get to that 28 day mark or closer you think that's something i really want it's not a bar i think still come in and have a chat with us because there's things that we can do but ultimately, you know, forward planning and if you can get it done in advance, partly because it's one of those nice things to park away and, and put away and enjoy the build up to your wedding. But it's not, I don't think it's an absolute bar and it's something that we can definitely work around. It's not an absolute bar and actually, you know, don't necessarily think that you can wait until after the wedding. I would much rather, you know, because we're, we're talking about wealth protection here. I would much rather someone see me, but we get it signed the day before and then we get a post-nup afterwards than just have a post-nup because if you remember the marriage is the point at which starting point is 50-50. Now in the nicest way if you do have a lot of wealth to protect and you've got married and you haven't done a prenup what's the incentive to your spouse in entering into a postnuptial agreement? You know, the starting point is 50-50 at that point. Um, so really these conversations do need to be had and thought about sort of ideally in advance, um, but certainly before um, come and speak to us in terms of what we can do. And what about if one party comes to you and says, I want you to draw up an agreement for both me and my intended spouse? So that, that's not possible. So one of the other criteria is that you both need to have independent legal advice because obviously, you know, that there, there, there is a risk of conflict there. Um, and therefore, you know, your spouse needs to be represented because you both also need to uh, have had the implications of this explained to you. That's what the court are also going to want to see is that, um, you know, you understand this document that you're signing up to. Again, however, and again, I think this shows the strength of how much the court are trying to say will will hold people to prenups. You know, there have been cases where the court have still upheld a prenup, even though one or one or both of the parties have not necessarily had legal advice. But certainly, 
that that's going to give it more weight and we would advise both parties getting legal advice but that doesn't mean that we can't work collaboratively you know all sitting around a table to draw this up you know this is this is doesn't have to be seen as a negative thing it protects both parties and gives parties certainty okay so we've talked about the fact that it needs to be done in advance of the wedding and that you really should have independent legal advice are there any other things we need to be thinking about yeah, so both parties will need to fully disclose their financial circumstances um, to each other because obviously if you don't do that, then you don't know what rights you're giving up. So you can't possibly sign something and be advised as to the implications of the prenuptial agreement unless you understand the financial circumstances. So ordinarily what will happen is that there will be schedules annexed to the prenuptial agreement that set out all your financial circumstances. So what your income is from all sources, any property you own, savings, investments, pensions, you know, everything. And then, you know, what the prenuptial agreement does is sort of say, well, okay, how should we treat all of those different assets? You know, are we going to share a certain portion of the assets and not others, which are going to be kept separate, which are going to be shared, but we need to list them all. And is a prenuptial agreement something you just do and then put in a cupboard and never think about again? No, so it's really important to think about reviewing this because one of the criteria, again, is that the prenuptial agreement needs to be fair. Um, If it's not fair, then the court are unlikely to uphold it. Now, fairness, very elastic concept. Um, What might be fair in, you know, uh, one case is not necessarily fair in, in another. And... Uh, And what might be deemed fair at the outset of a marriage when the parties are both young is not necessarily what's going to be fair if a couple decide to have children and one of them gives up their job. Is not necessarily going to be fair, you know, if they're 20, 30 years into the marriage. So what we build into prenuptial agreements are review clauses so that it's constantly reviewed either after certain periods of time or after a significant life-changing event like the birth of a child to ensure that it keeps that safeguard um, of fairness and that the court are therefore more likely to uphold it. Um, In your practice, when do you come across people who need prenups or what kind of circumstances would you say you really need to be thinking about a prenup in this case? So I tend to um, see it in in a couple of situations. So first is a second marriage. So people have been through this process before divorce, <laughs> um, you know, have assets that they want to protect either for themselves, uh, because because they've already sort of ha- had a reduction in their assets from their first divorce, or, or particularly because there are children that they want to make sure that their assets they leave to from a first marriage. So where both parties actually are quite financially independent, possibly, um, both have separate houses, you know, want to get married, but actually want to know that they'll keep those assets if, you know, if there is a later divorce. So that sort of situation. Um, Alternatively, um, I quite often see a younger couple perhaps being wheeled in by parents um, who, um, one is perhaps financially far better off than the other party, by way of inheritance, for example. Um, And there is a, a concern, certainly at the outset, um, that if the marriage were to break down in the in the first couple of years, that that wouldn't be fair to necessarily split it 50-50 and some protection over those assets. So that's another situation where they're younger perhaps, but a disparity. 
There's also um, sort of I, I, I work in the agricultural community and what I quite often see as well is prenuptial agreements being entered into if there's you know a, a, a farming partnership because you've got multi-generations of people relying on this farm and if there's a divorce that has massive implications for everyone you know if you've got grandma living in the farmhouse and mum and dad involved in the business and you know if there's if there's a divorce it really has implications so um, what we're actually seeing is being built into partnership agreements and things and not just farms I mean it can be for other businesses as well are actually potentially clauses that say, you know, you have to enter into a prenuptial agreement if you get married in order to protect the business um, and the livelihood of, you know, several generations of, of, of the family. I think that's a really interesting point, actually. And what about families who have got family trusts and perhaps someone is coming into the family as a, as a future spouse? How does that get dealt with? So a lot of people, I think, tr- think that trusts are protected think that um, you know that that's a way of protecting wealth and it might be from a tax point of view but certainly from the family courts point of view you know you have to disclose your interest in a trust and that is still an asset that is available to be considered in terms of the distribution of the assets so family trusts are, are a whole separate topic that we could probably go into but for the purposes of, of, of this and wealth protection I would say you know you have to disclose your trust that's not enough. The court can look at a trust and the court can say, well, you know, your spouse might not be a beneficiary, but we're going to make an order that encourages the trustees to make payment to your spouse because you are a beneficiary. What I would be saying is you still need to think about prenuptial agreements that a trust alone is not sufficient protection. And I guess marriage is massively a personal choice, isn't it? And one of the biggest growing relationship groups is cohabitants. So we've spoken a lot about prenuptial agreements and those are really reserved for people who are entering into a marriage what about people who aren't either ready to get married or choose not to get married what kind of things can they put in place to protect themselves so absolutely and as you said marriage rates are declining and cohabitation is is on the up um there are certainly agreements that you can enter into. They're called cohabitation agreements. So it would be the same thing, a contract between you that would set out your financial circumstances and what you would want to happen if there were a later separation. You know, people should be aware that there is no sort of common law spouse. This is sort of a, a, a term that is banded around quite a lot. And people think, you know, if I'm, you know, with my partner for 20 years, we have children, we have a house then you get certain rights. There's no such thing, I'm afraid, as a common law spouse. Rights for cohabitants. At present, this may be another area for reform in due course, but at the moment, rights for cohabitants are very different to a married couple. So if you're married, starting point, as I've said, 50-50. For cohabitants, it's who owns the asset. If the family home's in the husband's name, sorry, in the, in the cohabitant's name, let me say, so partner's name, You don't, as a starting point, have any rights to that if you're not married. There are certain ways that you can acquire or say that you should have an interest, but they're very limited. The the courts are very strict in that type of area of law, um, and they're very costly sort of proceedings to try and argue that. So this is, again, crucially important to protect everyone, and if there are children as well, to sort sort of say, okay, we're making a life for each other. We've chosen not to get married, that's fine, but we're making life for each other. We are, you know, wanting to draw up a cohabitation agreement to just make sure that we're regulating what happens during our cohabitation and also if we separate as well. 
And I guess just to conclude this part, I don't know about you, but I've, I found that when I've had clients who've entered into prenuptial agreements or cohabitation agreements, actually there's almost a sense of relief. It's, it can be a little bit uncomfortable to talk about at the beginning, but actually to have these conversations, I think is really healthy is to say, look, this is what would happen if it didn't work. And I wonder if actually in many ways that makes a more successful relationship because people are being quite honest with each other from the outset. And I think everyone's got quite a clear view and a, a clear way that this would be resolved. And I, you know, I wonder what your experience is of that. Yeah, I mean, completely. I, I, I think you have to be transparent with a prenuptial agreement. You have to disclose all of your finances um, because obviously you need to understand what you're, you're, you're potentially giving up before you can sign and enter into a prenup. So you have to disclose all your finances from the outside, outset. You have to have quite upfront conversations. Um, and, and, and I think it's really healthy. I think, and, and as I say, I want to get away from this unromantic thought. And, you know, I, I, I think it's just a healthy way to start out is, you know, let's protect both of us. We know where we stand and let's avoid, you know, hopefully we'll never, hopefully we'll never need to look at it again. But if we do both of us can avoid tens of thousands of pounds in legal fees arguing over what should happen because actually we've put down on paper what we think is fair. Mm-hmm.